0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com and, of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal.
1: Let's bring in Megan Green, shall we? Harvard Kennedy School senior fellow. Megan, do you think it's too premature to have that cycle? conversation, a conversation about the cycle and maybe this Fed just never raise interest rates.
2: I think it is a little premature. There is a huge de- debate raging about, you know, what kind of inflation we're going to get. We know we'll get some temporarily. The Fed has acknowledged as much. Um, but will it be sustained? That's a big question. I do think, though, at the end of this year, if we have unemployment at four and a half percent, as the Fed expects, uh, and as Secretary Yellen says, we should get to full employment next year, And if we have inflation at two and a half percent at the end of this year, which isn't impossible, it is going to become increasingly untenable for the Fed to argue that the appropriate policy rate in those conditions is zero. So I actually think that the Fed will be pushed into hiking sooner rather than later. So I think the scenario where the Fed just never hikes through this cycle is a pretty unlikely one.
1: Can we put a number on sooner? Are you a Kaplan 2022 type of call if you're on the FOMC right now, Megan?
2: Um, you know, if you force me to, uh, the Fed has said that they're going to go ahead and, and taper purchases first and that they'll provide a long runway for investors to do that. Um, so, you know, if we ended up having the Fed hiking in 2022, it would probably happen in the, in the latter part of that year. But I think that's certainly possible. And certainly I think it's, it's likely before the Fed's own forecast, according to the dot plots, which isn't until 2024 the earliest. And that
3: implies also that they will start to taper the $120 billion of bond purchases uh, that they've been making monthly. How soon could we see tapering?
2: So you could see them start to discuss it at the end of this year. Look, I think tapering is going to be really tricky. Even if the Fed goes ahead and guideposts this very clearly well in advance, it represents a binary shift. And therefore, I don't see the Fed being able to taper without roiling the markets. And we know what happened Last time we had a taper, there, there was a tantrum, especially through emerging markets. And I think this is something that investors really need to watch.
3: How does financial stability weigh in on this? The idea that the markets are supported by the Fed's ultra easy policies at a time when we do have a new boom uh, supposedly underway.
2: Well, that's certainly you know one of the reaction functions of the Fed, even though it's not part of their official mandate. It, it is indirectly. And so the Fed is looking at this. But even if you get rates starting to go up very gradually over the next couple of years, it's, it's from zero. And so while a bunch of the markets could look frothy, there might be room for the Fed to start. Um, to normalize rates. I don't think we'll ever fully normalize rates, but at least start to hike them. Um, So, you know, it's a consideration, but I think that that's a balance that the Fed's going to have to get. And they had to get it right in the last uh, hiking cycle as well.
1: Megan, looking forward, do you think that's what's shaping the views of the likes of President Kaplan on financial stability and rates? Do you think he's tying the two things together?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, Kaplan's a markets guy, so I think he's absolutely tying the two things together. But, you know, I think it's not just financial stability. It's also the robust growth forecast that we have, as well, the, the bond market moves that we've seen so far this year. I think it's, it's all of it together, but he's certainly looking at the markets uh, and thinking that some of them are frothy. He's come out and said that before. Um, So I'm sure that's a part of his his reaction.
1: He said that repeatedly on this program. I just wonder how lonely he is on that FOMC right now. Megan, it's good to catch up. It's good to see you as always. Harvard Kennedy School senior scholar. A lot of people joining the dots from what's happening here, safe from the commodity market, back to what has happened in Europe, where the lockdowns now are set to be extended in places like Germany for several extra weeks.
3: Yeah, and the question, can we get a global recovery where you get that sort of incredible demand for precious metals and oil if you don't have one of the major areas of economic growth uh, firing at all, which is Europe, and they've been lagging behind, and I do wonder whether people are adequately pricing in the ripple effects of that delay in getting back up to speed.
1: Let's have that conversation about the pandemic right now with Dr. Amish Adalja, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security Senior Scholar. Doctor, typically you and I would start a conversation by discussing the latest data cases, deaths, the vaccine rollout. I want to do something a little bit different this morning and talk about the things that we need to address after this pandemic is behind us. And one of those things in America is a delicate issue. It's obesity. It's a complex issue. And what we've seen through this pandemic due to latest studies informing us, doctor, is that people have gained weight through this pandemic. What do we need to address and how can we address it in America, given what we've learned over the last 12 months? So I think that this pandemic virus, because of its ability to really prey on people with other risk factors,
4: really had an easy time finding victims in the United States. And that's because we have very high rates of obesity, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. Those three conditions really were kindling for this virus to be able to find victims and land them in the hospitals and put all our hospitals into crisis. That, coupled with the way our nursing homes have been handled, really explain the trajectory in many parts of what happened with this with this uh, pandemic so i do think we have to address these other public health concerns and these are things that are going to be difficult because they're lifestyle diseases that means that we have to tell people that need they need to diet they need to exercise we which are very hard to do because people have been telling uh doctors have been telling people to do that for so long. It's just very hard to do. I think but this really lays bare the problem that we have. And the next pandemic, even influenza seasons, are exacerbated by these comorbidities that we have. So I do think we have to really think about how do we make our country resilient to pandemics. And that's not just diagnostics, vaccines, medications, and hospital preparedness. It's also getting the population as as fit, as healthy as possible, so that this virus or any other virus
1: doesn't have so many easy victims around. This is an issue that's been on the public's radar in this country and elsewhere for a long, long time, Doctor, as you know. Where do you think we have fallen short? And if you'd like to see a renewed effort out of the capital at a federal level, how would you like to see that develop in the months to come? I think it's very hard to come up with a program that's going to be effective against these
4: types of lifestyle diseases because it's so multifactorial and the government can't really tell people or expect them to, to diet or exercise as they say. But I think what what you, you want to do is maybe launch an education campaign about how this happens in the schools to get people to, to be more healthy about their, their um their, their choices that they make. I don't know how much of this can be done from a top-down approach. It's very, very hard to do. It's not my expertise about how to, how to change behavior this way, but it's clearly something we need to, to, uh, to fix. And it's going to take an all-out effort to really uh, address these problems, which have been chronic and longstanding in this country.
3: Yeah. And I will say uh, there has been discussion about whether we are underemphasizing some of the side effects from some of the shutdowns and the prolonged bouts of isolation. I mean, I was looking at this one study that showed that 42% of Americans reported gaining unwanted weight and the average weight gain was 29 pounds during the pandemic, just to give some sense. And as people isolated, not having anywhere to go, drinking more, feeling like they are are trying to uh, fill their time with prolonged stress, a very difficult period of time, As we move toward the end, it is understandable that people want to be done with this, which is why we're seeing crowds on Miami Beach, which is why when we go see uh, restaurants, there are people packed in even before the pandemic has lifted. Do we really have a big risk of a third wave as people are just tired of the pandemic and say at this point, whatever happens, happens?
4: I think the United States is going to have some uptick in cases. Whether or not it it looks like Europe, I I think it remains to be seen. I I think what's better in the United States than in Europe is we have a a much more robust vaccination program. And the goal is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And we're doing that, getting two, three million people vaccinated. So I do think we're probably able to stay ahead of the worst consequences of people's lack of social distancing. And the other thing is, is what we're seeing is a decoupling of cases from hospitalizations and deaths, because we've now got a lot of people who are living in nursing homes, a lot of people that live in the community with high risk factors vaccinated. So we are going to see cases go up, but hospitalizations and deaths basically remain the same or go down, which is happening in most of the country right now. And I think that's gonna change the way people think about this disease. It becomes a more manageable respiratory infection. So the goal is we know people are going to be doing this our solution is to keep vaccinating as quickly and as fast as possible so that those individuals are less likely to spread this virus and we're not impacted the way Europe is. I don't think we're going to have a European trajectory uh, based on just our vaccination numbers alone.
3: This is really important. Do you think that health officials have to nuance their message to say at this point, yeah, we could see more spread, but it's less uh, harmful just because the most at-risk individuals have been largely vaccinated in the United States? So you know what? Please try to be careful. But we're not going to crack down as hard as perhaps in other areas. Is that more of a legitimate message from healthcare professionals?
4: I do think it is. I think that that actually meets people where they are. It actually... Uh, Covers the whole concept of harm reduction and what we've been trying to do with this virus is remove its ability to cause serious disease, hospitalization, and death. And that's what the vaccine is doing. So we're going to not get to COVID zero. We're still going to see blips in cases, but those blips in cases are not going to end up landing, hopefully, on a vulnerable person and putting them in a hospital because we vaccinated so much. So that's why we have to kind of keep the gas, the pedal to the metal, basically, when we're uh, vaccinating in order to to make sure that this doesn't happen. And, And I think we have to be more nuanced. We can't keep telling people. People that this is going to go on forever
1: and ever. They're, they're not going to listen to it, and they're not listening. So I think yeah. we have to say this is our goal. Doctor, really well put, and good to see you again. Thanks for everything. Dr. Amir Shadalja there, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security Senior scholar. Let's bring in Anne Meletti, Wells Fargo Asset Management Head of active strategy and talk to me about this moment we're in for active management for the rotation and help me understand whether it's just a moment in time or something that can endure beyond 21 into two into 23.
5: Well Jonathan I think it's a great question Um, certainly we're going to see a lot of strength in the economy like you mentioned earlier that surge is going to cause earnings growth in several companies, but it's not going to be across the board. And this is where I think active management can really play a role where fundamentals are going to matter. The dream is the dream, but now it becomes the reality. And so who can really capitalize on building cash flow and earnings? And those will be the companies that are rewarded more in the next cycle.
1: Give me a better understanding of your process than your approach right now to bottom-up analysis and stock picking GAN. What do you look for?
5: Yeah, so certainly, you know, we have portfolio managers and investment teams that have value focus and growth focus, um, emerging markets, et cetera, across the board. But I would say that instead of focusing on value or growth, what they're focusing on more is cyclicality and secular trends. And those are really what's changing almost on a daily basis, the leadership of the market. Certainly, the recovery in GDP is pushing that secular trend that we're seeing in value in small cap stocks. But the, um, sorry, the cyclical trend, but the secular trends are really driving what we're seeing across almost every industry. Innovation really has led the way, especially over the last year, And it's going to continue to be an important driver for earnings and cash flow for all industries.
3: So you talked about uh, basing some of the purchases on fundamentals, and it's Philosophy Tuesdays. I'm going to dub this as Philosophy Tuesdays. What are fundamentals at a time when so much is being driven by policy, whether it be fiscal or monetary?
5: You know, fundamentals really are how companies are investing for the future. And certainly capital has been very, very cheap. That liquidity has um, made it possible for almost every company to survive this past year, but also for them to do relatively well in the marketplace. But now there's going to be some separation of winners and losers. It's who has focused, taken um, that liquidity and invested it for the future and who's going to continue to do that. If you don't invest for your future, you're going to die. And that's what we've seen. Um, That's what we're going to see more and more, just innovation trends continue, digitalization continues, and all the companies almost across the board are going to have to invest.
3: And do you think that the market is accurately picking up on the companies that are investing well in their future? And I'm saying this at a time when we're expecting GameStop to come out with earnings. And yeah, they're expected to not lose money for the first time in a long time. And yet people might argue that might not be enough to justify the tremendous rally that we've seen. I mean, is the market acting efficiently?
5: You know, Lisa, I think it's fair to say we're seeing some very strange things. I mean, certainly in my 30-year um, <laughs> career, I have not seen some of the things that I've seen over the last, you know, six months, even over the last year. So there there are inefficiencies in the market. And whenever you have this much stimulus thrown into the market, you're going to see things happen like we're seeing today. But what's really driven the market over the last decade is all of this stimulus it's almost like everyone can survive because capital is so cheap that trend has to stop at some point and that's when fundamentals really will matter and and quite honestly they still have mattered for the most part investors are focused on cash flow they're focused on earnings growth and that's going to become more important especially when we get to a rising rate environment Um, Those are the companies that need to produce earnings. If you have a high multiple now, it might be okay as long as you can rapidly grow your earnings.
1: And before we let you go, I want to finish where we started. I think you did a brilliant job there of taking us away from growth versus value to focus on the cyclical aspects of this market and the more secular aspects of this market as well. Some people might go another step further. The cyclical story is a story for me to buy and hold on a short-term horizon, and the secular story is something longer time horizon. And I'm trying to understand for you, Anne, whether there is a cyclical story that you'd like to hold beyond just, say, the next 12 months.
5: Yes, I think there are. There are several industrial companies in the manufacturing space and other places that that are benefiting both from the cyclical trends, but also the secular story. We have manufacturing coming back to the U.S. We need to build more in the U.S., that started, you know, over the past four years. That's going to continue into this into this um, presidential term as well, and so that the secular and the cyclical can emerge in a lot of companies together, and that can last, and that could create a cyclical story that lasts much longer than we've seen in the past. And
1: that's the one I think we need to talk more about. That could get really interesting in the year ahead, and it's great to catch up. Come back soon. Love to catch up. Anne Meletti, Wells Fargo Asset Management Head of Accurate Strategy. spent this morning talking about monetary policy, fiscal policy, the kind of things we always do. We've also talked about looking back 12 months and the lessons learned in the equity market. I think we need to do the same in credit now. And we've got the perfect guest to do that with Don Mullen, Prudium CEO and founder. Don, let's start there. The look back 12 months, the lessons learned, how resilient credit's been compared to what you expected. What was the big lesson for you, Don?
6: I think the big lesson that we learned is that When the Fed decides to do credit QE, which it really did the first time in this crisis where it made a decision to invest in investment-grade bonds, it would have a dramatic effect all throughout credit, and that as a result, don't uh, fight the Fed, a common phrase in the past was more true this time than ever before, particularly when you pile on fiscal policy, which was extraordinary this time around. Um, I think the challenge, uh, referencing some of your other comments, is that I think strong expectations of high GDP growth for the latter half of this year and going into next year are are consensus, but people aren't sure how that's going to be spent. And so the ability to understand valuations in credit and valuations in the equity market, as well as the fact that so many companies have different balance sheets today than they did in 2019, no one knows which companies will be uh, which companies will be the ones that don't benefit, and so there's a, a challenge right now in credit markets. What's the right narrative structure? You know, how will movies recover? How will gyms recover? Do they have too much debt? Do they have too little equity? Because nobody knows what the new normal is.
3: That's true in both stocks and bonds, and you're seeing in stocks people starting to question the cyclical trade. I'm wondering if you're seeing a similar move in credit. This idea that it's been so good and it's been backed by a really easy Fed that's now second guessing uh, some of its policies and how applicable they are to a future that looks brighter. I mean, basically, are you starting to get more cautious on credit from here?
6: Well, I think we're going to see the, a trader's market rather than an investor's market. And so less beta, uh, more volatility in credit. Uh, we'd hope to see some dispersion. There certainly should be more dispersion in the lower quality and the smaller cap names where capital has a harder time accessing uh, with all the large numbers of money managers all raising huge amounts of opportunistic capital and distress capital. We think the larger names are certainly priced to perfection. And so more of the inefficiencies are on the bottom parts of the market of the smaller sizes. But uh, yeah, it's we're going to see a lot more volatility in credit spreads as the narrative develops, as I said, we don't really know where the consumer dollars are going to be spent. We know clearly they're going to be different than they were in 2019. And so as a result, we see opportunity coming. But I think it's the early days of opportunity. In this nanosecond, in this moment, I think we're priced closer to perfection, but I see opportunity on the horizon.
3: Where is there distress at a time of 4% high-yield bond yields?
6: Well, we still have businesses that if you look through that, we had a very high default rate uh, in 2020 and we continue to see an above average default rate coming in. And don't forget that last year we had default rates at almost 7% in bonds and an excess of 4% in loans and lower recoveries. Uh, you know, we obviously had some gyms who survived as an example or, Uh, We had restaurants and quick-serve restaurants all suffered and many defaulted. So as a result, the areas that really had the 95% declines in revenue, which was uh, the leisure, travel, and entertainment category, certainly experienced defaults. The companies with access to capital will be the ones that, similar to your earlier comments on the show, talked about Americans who've gained the COVID-19 pounds, we have many companies that have a much larger balance sheet uh, with the amount of debt and equity. And will the new cash flow that plays out in 2021 be adequate to service that uh, valuation or that level of debt? I think there'll be many who won't. And as a result, that's what we think the new defaults will be, that growth uh, as it changes. I, thought, I saw the announcement today that the streaming window for theaters has been shrinking. That's only going to affect the ability for theaters to generate cash flow. And as a result, an area that we think that debt probably is solvent, but equities are probably too highly valued.
1: Don, good to catch up, sir. Don Mullen, Freddie, CEO and founder. Don, thank you.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.